right, everybody. Uh, I just want to sort of welcome Adam Smith. He is the founder of the Real Junk Fruit Project, uh, which was established in December 2013. And um, it was about three weeks ago I, I came across a post on LinkedIn. Um, and it really caught my attention because the, the first line was like, age 25, found pronounced dead in a field. And... Uh, and and it was really cocaine that was keeping this guy alive. Um, continue to read on. This guy has uh, has, has changed a lot in his life. Um, we'll get into a little bit of that. But a part of this podcast is really about um, the the company that he has started, uh, which is really changing people's or the 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 slogan was feeding bellies not bins as far as i remember so um we'll get into more of that as well and how we can educate people on um how much food is really going to waste and, and landfill and stuff and 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 that bridging that gap between food surplus and and food poverty yeah. um but adam can you just tell me a wee bit more about that stage in your life when you were 25 years of age and I love these kind of stories where people just like change their life uh, around and it goes from such a, such a low place. And I hope you don't take offense to me saying that in that way, but, um, uh-huh. and the, and then you, you just change it around. So um, can you give us a little bit of background about where you were at that stage and how you got to that stage? And, and cause it is a real like, story and an inspirational kind of story for other people who may be in a similar position and how they yeah. can change. So I was obviously found dead, uh, pronounced dead by the police who have triangulated my last text message and found me in a car that had been sucking on exhaust fumes for around, I think it's between 10 and 16 hours I was in there for. And I was, my skin was completely black and, you know, I, I, I'm now a registered first aider and I now know that you don't check somebody's pulse when you find somebody, you check their airways and other stuff. So obviously it was an untrained police officer, tried to check my pulse, missed my heartbeat, pronounced me dead, took me to the hospital. And like I mentioned, I had class A drugs in my body and it was just about keeping my heartbeat in despite what I'd done to myself. Mm-hmm. But a lot of uh, people reacted um, kind of instantaneously off the back of that and kind of said that I'd just cheated on my partner at the time and she found out about it and I'd I've been sleeping with lots of girls and I lived in this kind of hotel and where I worked and I was just sleeping around and completely being disrespectful and dishonest and she'd found out about it and that's when I went and kind of committed the act but it wasn't because of that that I tried to end my life. There was a point of trauma when I was 10 years old um, where I was woken by the police and led past on my presence on Christmas morning after my dad had committed acts of domestic violence against my mother and at that time domestic violence wasn't even a thing it was just you know your dad beat your mom up and uh, parents got divorced and kids just had to keep quiet and I suffered that I suffered that and what's really interesting now is I've done a lot of these podcasts and discussions around mental health it seems to be like a similar generation of men of my age 18 to 35 kind of suffered that period in time when it was like the whole boom of divorce and dysfunctional families and we now have families ourselves and we kind of got caught up in the middle of all of that. Um, and so, yeah, it was a 15-year journey of self-destruction, substance abuse, section into mental health homes, prison, um, institutionalising to care, 
ran away from home, abducted by paedophiles, abused, everything you can imagine I went through. I, I, um, some of it was self-inflicted. I, I, I kind of sought out after it. I went on adventures and ran away from home and did the most stupid things. I wasn't a very nice person to be around. I couldn't just go out for a quiet drink with my friends. I'd end up three days later in Thailand with a £5,000 bank loan. <laughs> what? That's just what an idiot I was. And you know, it was never like just smoke a joint and, and play computers. It was either I had buy £100 worth of cocaine, let's go out and have a massive bender and go back to work on Monday morning. It was like my mates um, had limits and boundaries and I didn't. And yeah, yeah just a self destructive path of abuse and uh, self harm and attempts at suicide and overdoses and everything you can imagine really until that point where I was found in that car and then when I came round um, you know it wasn't an epiphany moment at all and I think this is one of the key points that I, I discuss quite a lot around the post that you mentioned you know people have been contacting me and asking for the kind of get rich quick answer like what did you do you know what's yeah. the is like I didn't, I didn't do anything like it wasn't like that this is a 10-year journey of, uh, you know, trauma therapy to uh, conflict mm-hmm. resolution to dealing with my own mental health to removing toxic people from my life to leaving my job to leaving my home to lots and lots of things that I had to do. A series of events that led me to where I am today, which is the best I've ever been mentally and physically and, and professionally in, in my life. And I've worked incredibly hard on a lot of things, had a family, bought a house, and um, you know it's because I made the decision that I would never be back in that field again I would never be back in that bed when I woke up three days later in that hospital and I didn't quite know how I was going to get there but I just knew I was never going to go back and then I was diagnosed with high functioning autism I'm going through a process of that at the moment of being diagnosed with it and the spectrum thing has kind of helped me a little bit but it's also convoluted a lot of things as well so I had to go through trauma therapy to try and process a lot of the trauma and lots of trauma I'm writing a book off the back of that post now with a co-author. I'm doing 30 chapters. Wow. Even my co-authors emailed me back on a couple of occasions and gone, are you, are you okay? And I was like, yeah, why? He's like, he goes, I'm reading some of that stuff that you've written. It's really bad. Like, it's horrendous. And he's like, you're only on chapter four. There's like another chapter. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I know, I know. Um, so I, I do have an horrendous story. Um I, I, I take responsibility for a lot of things. You know, I, I, I knew the difference between right and wrong. So I don't want to kind of um, expect people to be kind of empathetic or sympathetic towards me whatsoever. It was more about revealing the fact that somebody had gone through this incredibly destructive and self-destructive life and there was an end. You know, yeah. I, I was dead in that field. And there is a new beginning um, and I've changed everything. And not only have I changed everything to turn my life around, um, which is incredible in itself and everybody should be credited for taking those steps. But then I've also put a lot of my energy into uh, trying to feed people around the world and stop food waste globally. Yes. yes, you mentioned a couple of good things there. Like it is a process; it is long term. Um, like you had to get rid of some things and some people, and obviously be able to take ownership of where you were. And those are very key things, obviously, then to to move forward and get better. And such a thing, but and I've um, mistakes, I think that's the key thing is that I've made mistakes, I've still hurt people, but yeah. I have done it in a way that um caused me to react to the way that I did before. 
So like I can have a drink now. I'm I'm not in a period of sobriety whatsoever, even though I suffered serious substance abuse. I can get a bottle of wine on a Friday and it'll last me till Sunday afternoon. And I can stop drinking if I want. If I feel like I've had a bit too much, I yeah. won't have any more. I can choose to buy it. I can choose not to buy it. Um, I've never taken drugs since. Uh, so also on one occasion, I think I've done it, um, but it completely messed my head up. Like where I, I wasn't in control and I just didn't like that feeling. Yeah. I'm much, much more in control of my own mind. And I have made mistakes. And I think that's really crucial for when people are on this path of um, understanding that it's not going to be this perfect ride forward. Yeah, uh, there's going to be stumbling blocks. There's going to be hurdles. There's going to be people you interact with. There's going to be people come back into your life. There's going to be people who only know you when they last remember you. You know, at that point, um, when you last interacted with them, that's where that's how they know you. And you may, might be a completely yeah. person now. And that's really hard as well when you're on that path because you're like, yeah, look at all these positive things I'm doing and look at all these great things I'm doing. And then you meet somebody you're like, fuck, I remember hurting you really bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember what you thought of me and, and what I said. And then you've got to deal with all that as well. So, you know, the path is, um, it's not straightforward. I wouldn't say it's a roller coaster, but it, it, it is incredibly challenging. And mm-hmm. you will have really dark days and you will have really down days. Um, but it's about having that strength, that inner strength of, realizing that you're not going to be back in that situation again yeah uh, and just re- keep remembering where you are in comparison to where you were and i think that's 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 key for in that, in that in that stage yeah and one of the things i want to touch on just before we move on to kind of like uh, your company and things is that that self-awareness and you know you mentioned that one time where you took them drugs and stuff again and, and you were aware that you didn't want to feel like that again is there anything that you do to kind of help you increase that self-awareness or be more present to kind of deal with the things like that well i guess it was the, the um when i started the company uh, i got a lot of the media attention you know i was on the front covers of magazines i was getting uh, offers with to film with jamie oliver he feeling what installed i was on cnn i was on russia today you know bbc one show you name it i was i was on these things and it got to me because i'd not worked on myself enough yeah. Um, my ego got in the way and it became inflated and I thought I was invincible and because I'd not dealt with properly the trauma and the issues from the past I wasn't able to be the best CEO or the founder that I was supposed to be and so I went away and did the trauma therapy and that helped a lot with processing trauma and to deal with the kind of the mm-hmm. around the, um, the spectrum the autism stuff um, so that really, really helped a lot, and that's allowed me now to kind of step back from situations and to be kind of leader that people expect me to be. Um, conflict resolution is a huge thing in people's lives. You know, we deal with this in society. I think the UK, especially, and I've travelled the world, and I've, I've been to more than two thirds of the world. Um, I think the UK, especially, is very immature when it comes to conflict resolution, and I think it shows if you look at Brexit and Black Lives Matter and some of the major things that have happened in our recent lifetimes. Mm-hmm. We're not we're not mature enough to have um, debates and understand differences in opinion and to deal with conflict resolution and to understand that you're not always right. Um, I had to go away and focus on that on myself and, yeah. and, and focus on those things uh, from my own um, point of view. But then I also had to realise those things as part of the project point of view. And then I had to make sure that my attitude and my personal didn't conflict with the organisations and it wasn't. People would message you me saying, oh, you can tell when you're on social media because it's, you know, because of the way that you speak. And it's like, that's not really fair on the organization that it kind of, um, my my energy is going through it to the point where it may um, come out in a negative way. Yeah. 
I really had to step back and really had to work on that stuff. And, I, and I'm still working on it now. I'm still going for it. I'm still in therapy at the moment. If I tell you something, my therapist yesterday, mm-hmm. I've told her that I still need that kind of level of support because I'm probably about to go on a year of uh, really exponential growth, not just for the project, but also myself personally, given the yes. fact that coming out and, you know, Danny Boyle's friend got in contact about doing a film on my life, etc. So I know that the kind of the scale and magnitude of what could happen to me in the next year, given the fact that I'm probably more centered now, um, is going to be probably quite large and uh, in comparison to previous years. So, I, you know, I still need that support. I still need to process a lot of it. Mm-hmm. And even speaking about it, you know, speaking to yourself and other people, um, there's a, a guy that I did a podcast with yesterday and he asked me what I would go back and say to a 10-year-old Adam. And I started crying and I said I wouldn't say anything to him. I'd just give him a hug. And I spoke to my therapist about it and she said that's the best answer you could have ever given. She said that just shows <laughs> you've got to the stages of being empathetic and sympathetic towards that 10-year-old boy. And you know, I've got a seven-year-old boy now and he's only a couple of years away from being mm. the age I was when this shit started happening to me. And he hasn't got a clue about the stuff like <laughs> You know, I was in a very adult world and, you know, he's this young, innocent, naive little boy and I just, mm-hmm. it's really, really nice to watch it and to feel like he's having a childhood. Yes. And then also hits on really hard thinking, how the hell did anybody let that stuff happen to me at that age? Yeah. So I'm still going through like some really kind of deep traumatic processing, but it's not affecting me the same way as it has done before ever because, you know, I've got a family now, I've got other people to be responsible for. Um, I'm a CEO, I'm, I'm a public figure. And um, I, I recognised uh, my position in, in society and, and towards my team and um, also to my family as well. And um, that kind of self-recognition, mm-hmm. self-respect, self-discipline, uh, that's all things that I've had to learn over the past 10 years. And, you know, that's, that's, what, that's how it gets me through um, you know, some, of the, some of the tough days that I have. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Uh, and it's great to see your, your growth and uh, long may it continue, my friend. Um, yes, so to bring us, you obviously turned your life around. You have been, you traveled the world. You've been chefing sort of for like 10 years. Is that right? Yeah, uh, so 20, 20, uh, 2005 I started as a chef. So. so it's not like randomly you just come on, oh, we have this... Uh, waste food i want to do something about it you were obviously uh cooking and and you have a passion for food so obviously then um i want to talk about the tedx and uh, some of the key figures that you you sort of said like um in that and you said half of the food that's produced doesn't even make it to the tables and there's one billion people who don't have access to food which Mm -hmm. is leading to food poverty and stuff some extraordinary figures now that was back in 2015 uh, yeah. ha, ha, has yeah. it improved or yeah it's much worse it's much really worse. and those figures are the um those figures are done off the back of um i can't remember which organization it's a global organization or some kind of research yeah think tanks type uh, entity uh, that released those figures so these figures are you know you can google those figures and you can yeah. find those figures um i think they date back from like 2011 or 2012 those figures and i used them in 2015 it's much worse it wasn't even it wasn't even that good in 2015. It was worse in 2015, even though they'd released those figures around about that time. Jeez. You know, I think the, the problem that we have is is we grow and make far too much food, mm-hmm. and it's become a commodity to the point where people can make profit from it. So not only can they waste it and still make profit, but we have this paradoxical food system where 
and we're not even talking about third world countries or war-torn countries anymore we're talking about leeds and birmingham and newcastle and london where areas where you can have a supermarket a food bank and then some food waste charity and an anaerobic digester and then a farm all on the same row and they're all growing and wasting food and there's a family in the middle of it all all going without it and we have so much access to it and we grow so much of it and we waste so much of it and yet we have people going without now the project that i run isn't a social project we don't feed people we don't target vulnerable people we don't target people in need our charity is entirely environmental so our objectives are to educate people and to stop food waste from an environmental perspective but the way that we do that is by creating a page you feel concept where anybody can come anybody can pay what they want anybody can have access to food so there should be no excuses why people can't get access to food because you can give money time or skills to get access to food from us and the whole point of it was is that we create too much stigma and there's too much control over who can and can't have food and i i, I preach this for the past seven years that it's a basic human right to have access to food and mm-hmm. who am i to say that you can or cannot have anything or to control who should or shouldn't have anything when it comes to food or our basic human rights and so we said we wouldn't be that organization that we would do these mean tested questionnaires to you know to see if you were worthy and not of a yeah a type of pasta and a tin of beans like come on like what's what's wrong with us and it's all to do with funding it's all to do with control and unfortunately now in 2021 we've got more food waste than ever before in this country and surplus are not waste for food surplus so that's food that cannot be sold that is still edible that is destined for waste that we intersect it basically so it's yes. things that are in in date and things that might have suffered accidental damage or things that are just sheer surplus and you know and then we have people that are going without food at the same time as us creating waste more than ever before in this country you know you've seen the headlines of the children going hungry it's you know out of yeah. time and, and and holidays um holiday hunger they call it which i absolutely hate these hashtags what they attach to them and what we've done is we're tackling the problem of poverty and food poverty and hunger in this country with food surplus so when 2011-2012 when the rise of food waste costs increased to the point where it was about to start hitting the margins of some of these biggest food suppliers in the country all of a sudden austerity kicked in and then all of a sudden there were more poor people and more food banks and more need for food mm. and it was a saving grace for the retail industry because it meant they could just divert all their food to these food banks to look good for it get funded for it and not have to pay for it idiots like me had run around collecting it for free and then they'd look good for doing it and they realized this to the point where obviously when when march 2020 came and we had the lockdown the, the initial lockdown that exploded across the whole country because all of a sudden everybody needed food and then lots and lots of industries got hit really hard and had a lot of surplus and they needed to get rid of it then it became kind of cool to <coughs> excuse me to eat surplus food and then to be seen to be doing something responsible with it but still we're not solving either problem no uh, we are <coughs> excuse me we are sustaining both problems of food waste and food poverty by kind mm-hmm. of convoluting them both together and i constantly argue that we need to segregate the two tackle poverty as a social issue and tackle food waste as an environmental issue and completely separate the two because once we do that then we'll start making systematic changes then we might be able to start empowering people out of their positions but at the moment what's happening is there are more and more people going without and they've got this incredibly deep safety net 
of all this surplus food. So there's nothing to empower people to get out of this position. Mm-hmm. And that's why there's a rising food bank. That's why there's more food provisions than ever before in this country when it comes to the food sector. And it's not because more and more people are using food banks. It's because there's more and more food available. And therefore, if you do find yourself in a position where you know, you're in a difficult period, there is no issues of getting access to food. And if you're in, in that position now, you probably can get better access to food than you can actually go out and purchase because of the quality and the value of food that's actually being wasted. And yeah. that's the stages that it's got to. And it's going to get to the point where it will implode. The system will implode. Yeah. You cannot keep wasting that much food and you cannot keep sustaining that level of poverty. There's a couple of things in what you're saying there about your company. The first thing was really about the education part of it and stuff. And how far do you go with that? Do you go to like the farmers, the organizations, the supermarkets? Where, where, how does that work actually, you know, uh, with regards to your education? Are, are you just going out to communities? You know, how far in the chain are you, are you going we to? We do a lot. We, we intersect from anywhere. So there's no prejudice on where we do and don't get the food from. We've currently got 1,300 different suppliers at any one time. That ranges from farmers, wholesalers, hospitality, food banks, people's houses, uh, events, um, you know, and schools. There's all sorts of wonderful and weird reasons as to why food surplus exists in this country. And we, we, we do something in, a, in, in what is seen as a radical way because we provide boxes of food that people can pay £10 for or £5 for. And we have a huge uptake. Excuse me, sorry. I know a huge uptake for this in um, South, in, in West Yorkshire and areas of Yorkshire. And we probably do thousands of boxes a week uh, across across lots of different areas. And we we've allowed people to kind of organically grow this what we call the hubs um, to provide food to people. And what we do is we they have all these like different social media platforms where they share recipes and ideas mm-hmm. and pictures of all the stuff that they did with their boxes. And, and that's happened organically and people are, are empowering themselves and educating themselves of going, oh, I got a lot of this in my box today. I don't know what to do with it. So they put it on this group and then people kind of share ideas about what to do with it. And so the education part of it for us was to expose the problem and to just to provide people with access to this food. Because I believe that human beings instinctively don't want to waste. I think it's, I think it's born into us. I think there's something um, inhumane about waste uh, that doesn't sit comfortably with human beings. Now, there's the dismissive nature of it, where you can just put it in a bin and think it disappears to this magic land and it all gets turned into yes. you know, eyelashes of unicorns or something. <laughs> That's what people think. But obviously, then there's the kind of an immediate effect of um, what to do with things, especially like food waste, where there's no composting systems nationally in this country, or mm. you know, and and the cost of it is, is incredibly high, and and the damage and the impact of it is incredibly high. So. For us, it was just about providing access to people and giving them the opportunity to kind of work between themselves to educate one another. Um, and the education for us is, is actually the, the provision and it's worked on a national and international level um, to the point of 2016, uh, after I started the original cafe in 2013, there was 126 cafes in seven countries worldwide and we've fed just short of 14 million people, I think it is now. And all those people are eating food surplus. They're all still here today to tell the, tell the tale. So we've got huge amounts of data to prove that, one, um, it is safe to consume this food. And mm-hmm. two, that the scale of how much is being wasted is beyond any numbers or any research that anybody can do because it's just incredibly impossible yeah. 
to quantify what actually goes on in a global food chain, which is a it's a twenty four hour convey belt. Yeah, no way of monitoring it. Because there's something like, like if you think about the food chain, right? Even farmers, they may have to um, say they grow, le- grow grow lettuces. They may not be able to put that on the production line to go to the supermarket or the the retailer because it's not a certain size or there's certain things that uh, the characteristics that that has to have an order. And so it's perfectly good food that's going to waste. And then along that packaging might get damaged or and then it's sitting on, sitting on the shelf and it, and then they have the sell by date so these are just things along the way that's that's really escalating the issue but um like is there anything that could be done for the lick of the farmers that instead of throwing away that lettuce or where does that go i mean well it's quite easy actually because we've already done it you know, when lockdown happened, if you looked at uh, the original lockdown in March, April time, 2020, mm. we changed our entire outputs and viewpoints on everything that was going on in this country. So just slightly off tangent, if you look at homelessness, homelessness was eradicated overnight. It disappeared. Everybody was put into premises. Homelessness was gone. It's like, well, if it was that easy, why, why, why did we not just do this before? Like, you know, why, why did we not have the capacity to before? So obviously that was one foul political swoop solved solve homelessness. And then if you look at the food in this country, first of all, we started realizing there are certain things that we need. If you remember panic buying of like pasta and yes. what was going on, toilet roll, which was obviously not food related, but um, we were never going to write a toilet roll. <laughs> um, you know, people started realizing there was only certain things that they actually needed and not things that they just wanted. Yes. So things like unsustainable out of season foods like you know your avocados your cherries your blueberries that were being shipped in 24 hours a day seven days a week 365 days a year uh, from all over the world and then we started realizing we didn't need all this stuff so first and foremost we started looking at the seasonality and sustainability of foods and then it was about how do we get access to it well a lot of people even now i speak to are still incredibly traumatized by all those pictures of people climbing over each other in lockdown in supermarkets there was a few near me in leeds where there were just crowds and crowds of people all you know within within two meters of each other uh piling into supermarkets stockpiling foods queues around the block you know mm-hmm. there's pictures mm-hmm. everywhere yeah 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 and it traumatized a lot of people so people were sat on going well if i can't go to a supermarket how am i going to get access to food and then the food industry reacted and even now to this day, there's a lot of, especially independents on town streets who are doing successfully well. So your butchers, you know, your local greengrocers, all of a sudden diversified and started having cheese or bread or other things in their in their shops. And then farmers cottoned onto this and went, actually, we can just sell directly to the public. Mm-hmm. You can just do a food box and people will just buy it. And, you know, and then start doing five, 10, 15 pound veg boxes and fruit boxes and People were buying them and getting them delivered to their homes. So then we realised that the key workers in this country are not only the NHS and people that work in supermarkets, but it was also our drivers, you know, the lorry drivers, the career yeah. drivers. You know. It was about three different jobs in this country which practically held us up, um, you know, from the NHS to the supermarkets to the people that transported things around the country. And it just showed you how incredibly fragile our entire systems were and how dependent they were on a very, very few minute um, people to make it kind of turn around 
I mean, there's lots of other incredible sectors that do important things. Like yeah, yeah. But fundamentally, it was these three things. And, you know, it had a massive impact because all of a sudden, like you mentioned, if you've got these cosmetic standards where supermarkets want a certain curvature on a banana and yes. you know, a certain grade in yellow and all this nonsense. Yes. Now I've been into a supermarket where they've got a colour-coded scheme for bananas and it's like 1 to 12 of different shades of banana. And it's only the three middle ones that they actually use. Um, the ones that are slightly green and the ones that are slightly brown, they completely dismiss. So there's like another nine different colour gradients which they just dismiss and match it up against it. It's absolutely worth the time. And so um, what's started to happen now then is that uh, waste become a huge cost. Because we wasn't just talking about things that had gone past best before or you know, a little bit of accidental damage. Mm -hmm. The entire food system stopped and we were getting offered things like hundreds of pallets of frozen food. Now it's a huge, huge cost to dispose of frozen food. It's a huge cost to dispose of food in glass, for example, anything that's in glass jars or glass bottles. Um, and then they started realising what can we do instead of just distribute, redistributing it out to charities or donating it. Because obviously then businesses were starting to be impacted. You can't just keep donating food and losing money. It's not, it's not sustainable whatsoever. So people had these kind of direct services all of a sudden and people started realising we can cut out half the industry here if we just directly deliver to uh, the public. Right. And that started to happen more and more. So then waste was reduced. So we, uh, but it's gone back to some kind of normality now, even though we're in, an, in a final lockdown and um, you know, the vaccine programmes are happening. There is, there is lots of businesses now that have measures in place that can deal with track and trace and, and COVID compliance. And we've got the same thing from one-way systems to uh, the bubbles and masks and everything in the workplace. Yeah. We effectively stay open, as so can many others. So we've gone back to some normality as such, but you know, there's no kind of um, express stores anymore and all these convenience food and all these sandwiches and sushis and you know, these things that have got like four hour shelf life, they're not around anymore as such. Um, so it'd be really, really interesting to see how we come out of it, but we have massively reduced our waste because yeah. of what we realise we want or what we need, sorry, about what we want and also how we're getting access to it. It's very, very different to how we had access to food before. And I hope it continues because it is really shining a light on things like I mentioned, seasonality, sustainability, yes, and all these things. Um, but I've got a funny feeling as soon as the pubs are open again, I think we're all going to fill them. You mentioned there about like the like people using the seasoned uh, the the food that's in season and stuff. How much of a responsibility do you think like? The supermarkets will or will they even adjust what they're sort of buying in a stock and so on and um will they change much or will we have to sort of take more of a stand on that ourselves to to maybe not shop at the supermarket or and yeah, use I more locally or it is us it is us as consumers we do have the power to make those decisions we do have the power to change our behavior and uh, attitude towards food and how we access it um supermarkets won't change it's as simple as that they make a lot of profit from us and until their profit starts to get hit they will continue doing what they do they will continue passing the responsibility onto consumers and will continue to keep wasting food if you can waste that volume of food i think one retailer that we work closely with in 2019 uh, announced that they'd wasted 80 million pounds worth of food and it's like by saying they didn't spend 240 million 
on labour putting that food back into the system. So it was actually a cost saving. And I'm like, how do you even justify 80 million pounds worth of food over a year period? And they still managed to make profit. So if you can waste a significant amount of your stock for any business, you know, you think of all the different businesses that are in this country. Mm-hmm. Imagine being able to waste that much and still make profit. So until it's their bottom line, it's as simple as that. Supermarkets could stop food waste tomorrow if they wanted to. It just has to hit their profits. It's as simple as that. Yeah. There's so many questions going through my head, I swear. <laughs> uh, because of, I took up a job um, actually in Sainsbury's to, as I'm on furlough. Okay. okay. Yeah. And uh, you go through the, the fridges and stuff and you'll see the reduced prices. So people will start to sell. But I never actually thought about where does that actually go? you know all this food that they can't use or or whatever and it it just basically is there a process that they have to do or does it all go to landfill or um it's, it, it doesn't it doesn't all go to landfill um there's lots of different things that they do with it now so one of them is anaerobic digestion where they uh, put food in its packaging into this kind of machine that is the simplest way to describe it and they have uh, heat and, and water to it and it creates methane gas which obviously provides energy and then it creates a fertilizer with byproducts which obviously can be used in farms etc as well so um but the problem with those things is is that they need food waste to exist in order for them to survive yes now, i've been contacted by somebody actually recently in uh, ireland actually who got in touch with me and said my friend's setting up an anaerobic digestion plant and they'd like to start with some waste food um and they're thinking of, uh, of doing it in Liverpool and, and uh, would you be interested in giving us some of your waste food? And I was like, it's, it's really been a conflicting for me because it's like, it's great that these things exist to deal with the immediate problem. Mm-hmm. So we shouldn't have them in a sustainable world where we need to grow food to waste it in order to feed these plants to create energy, these machines to create energy. So um, I, have, I have issues with what's happening and it's just not the most of course. Economic and environmentally friendly way of dealing with food waste. We should yeah. stop making it as simple as that. Stop making so much bloody food. Yes. And then rather than trying to plaster over cracks and dealing with the problem, stop making it look at the root source of the problem. Yeah. Why is so much food being wasted? Why do people not go with you know go for such long times without uh-huh. food? Start looking at the root cause. So and there's there's things like livestock feed, you know, if it's not uh, going into the human chain, you can feed certain foods to livestock. Um there's, there's certain things now where they can turn it into other products. So we sell our bread waste to an organization that turns it into food for um, angling, but for sport reasons, not for um, for the human food chain reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's lots and lots of like weird and wonderful things that can be done with surplus food. But again, it needs food to be wasted in order for these things to happen. And that's the problem right now is that we don't look at the root cause. We try to plaster other cracks and come up with all these wonderful, weird Yes. Which companies up and down the country that are making drinks and jams and fruit jerky and all sorts of amazing products out of waste, commercialising that, um, and and they come on and you know do Google Hangouts with me and ask me for my advice and stuff. And I'm like, what happens if I stop food waste tomorrow? What are you going to do with your business? Yeah. Depends on a problem to exist in order to be profitable. And if that problem disappears you're no longer around and, 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 and all the or every single time that i speak to people about this 
their first reaction is, ah, yeah, but food waste ain't going to stop tomorrow, is it? I'm like, well, that's the problem, isn't it? Because mm -hmm. in my eyes, it is going to stop tomorrow because I'm going to try and make it stop tomorrow. Yeah. In your eyes, there's a problem that you can profit from it. Yeah. And, and too many people making money from waste. Waste is a very, very rich industry right now. Yeah. The other thing they're obviously mentioning the reduced price on um, certain foods. I even see like the mints and, and, and meats and stuff there uh, and saying, well, I can't, I'm not just going to mention Sainsbury's because there's obviously Tesco, Asda. I'm not going <laughs> to, yeah, they're all the same. I'm not going to um, just focus on, on that. But um, how do you change like people's perception of that? Because obviously everything, again, um has to have a sell by date use by date but you you know you're saying this stuff is perfectly edible and again the stigma people might have and the, maybe the 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 thought that they have in their head is that i can't use that is there something we can do like with regards to f taking that home and, and freezing that food and ed obviously educating people that way and um you know to help reducing the spending in supermarkets or um you know is there anything in that sort of side of things where we can, um, can you even explain why it has a sell by date and what it actually means, yeah. you know, to, to actually help people understand that it is still okay to use and stuff? Yeah, I think the answer that epitomizes that really is just education. You know, we, we, if, you, if you look at primary schools now in comparison to primary schools, say, 30, 40 years ago, um, you know, home economics and food technology and stuff are just not like what they used to be. And in fact, I spoke to somebody yesterday who said when they did food economics, they had to learn how to make the pastry and, and you know, and, and all the rest of it. Whereas now they buy the pastry in and the kids just cut the fruit up and, you know, what kind of life school is that? But there's a lot of education around the food that we put into our body, you know, first and foremost. That's a big thing that I did in terms of my uh, personal change is obviously as an environmental activist, I I know a lot about uh, animal protein and and and, um, and the destruction of the dairy industry and all the things that are going on around uh, from an environmental perspective, not from a personal perspective. So I changed my diet um, hugely. You know, I, I I'm completely plant based now, and um, me and my partner and my, and my children are all plant based as well. And then once you start taking those steps, you, it starts opening doors. So now we look at things like sugar content in foods and we look at um plastic packaging on foods and mm -hmm. <clears throat> excuse me we're very ethical about you know we've got bamboo toothbrushes and things like that yeah so it just opens up your eyes to lots of different things and so as consumers there's lots that we can do because there's so much access now to ethical products and people with consciences from the offset who are creating businesses that are trying to do better things not just for the planet but for animals and for ourselves as well yeah all free coincide dates on food is the bane of my life um uh, I, I get incredibly frustrated at our warehouse when food comes in on its use-by date and um, we are legally bound not to do anything with that except destroy it. A lot of my volunteers and staff take it home to consume themselves and it's a big free-for-all for all the stuff that has to go in the bin at midnight that evening. Use-by date is obviously protected by legislation. It's, um, it's around safety and you know you cannot you can be prosecuted for trading food past use by date there's a reason why use by dates exist and it's mainly on things like high risk foods such as like meat fish and dairy or foods that are mixed together and there's a chance that you can get incredibly sick if not death from consuming foods past their use by date especially if they're not handled properly i mean that by um cross-contamination and also to do with how they're stored so there's a really really high risk and they are really dangerous if not properly 
So there's a basic education there around how to handle our food, how to store things, like you said, you know, freeze things down, run it bait, to cook it and how to reheat it properly. There's a lot of food safety knowledge and experience that we don't have as a, as a society, that we don't yeah. have in schools. But then you've got all these other arbitrary dates that come with it as well, just to add confusion to the matter. So you've got best before, sell by, and now display by. And those three things are all a quality thing. So this is mainly to do with internal measures and policies that the retailers have and, and food suppliers to deal with stock control. Um, however, they've become convoluted with the use by dates. But now I believe, and I'll quite openly publicly say this, that these dates have become a manipulative tool to encourage people to dis dispose of food and then purchase the same food again. Right. Because the day itself, the number, today, the 19th, if you look on most food products, regardless of what the type of date is, the number will be in big, bold, black letters. Mm -hmm. And then the type of date will be in tiny, tiny little letters above it. Sometimes it might not even be near it. It might be somewhere else where it's a see best before or see used by when you go find the actual date. And these, what people are doing, and I know this because people tell me all the time, I get messages every single day, especially on social media, of people um, telling me that they they see a date and they throw it away. So they see the 19th and they think, oh, that's, it's, today's out of date, I'm going to throw it in the bin. And they won't look at what it is, regardless of what it is. Um, yeah. They're disposing of food because they're manipulated by the industry to think that this date is going to make them ill if they eat it afterwards. That's mm -hmm. that. And we are frightened of our food. Mm -hmm. We're terrified of it in this country. And it all boils down to the fact that we don't have enough education at a young age. Children are not aware of what they're putting into their bodies. We don't have relationships with our food, where it's coming from, how it's produced. And I have nothing against people eating animal protein. What I have a problem with is how the animal protein is raised, um, yeah. where it's grown, how it's traveled. So we're currently cutting down millions and millions of trees in South America. You know, deforestation, I think this morning came out into the size of California every year is disappearing in South America. Deforestation. We're then cutting the streets down to create these open grave lands to raise animals, millions and millions of cows. In fact, my son's mother, uh, her family live in Sao Paulo, and, and um, I know that they are aware of people and farmers who have got helicopters because they, they don't know the edge of their own farm because they <laughs> huge plains for, for, with all these cattle and livestock. Uh, so they tell me stories about that. And, um, and then what we do is we slaughter these animals. And, you know, that's again in this process in itself, which a lot of people are not comfortable with. But then it's cut up into these pieces of meat and put into these pieces of plastic and it's shipped all over the world. We slap a date on it. And then if that date is exceeded, we then dispose of it. And as you mentioned previously, it goes into landfill. So we're effectively cutting down trees to raise livestock, to ship it around the world, to put it into plastic, to put it into the ground. And the only thing that can counterproduct those gases is the bloody trees yes. that we've been cutting down. And so it's this vicious cycle. It's only recently in the last 10, 15, 20 years that we've started to realize the devastating impacts of this. And it all revolves around how we access our food the decisions we make about the type of food that we want to eat, so cheap processed animal protein especially, is incredibly dangerous, not for ourselves as, 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 as consumers and as individuals, but also for the planet as well. Yeah. You know, cheap bits of plastic, cheap bits of meat, 
it's in, it's incredibly dangerous and um it's only going to have devastating impacts on us on a, on a bigger scale and a bigger picture mm-hmm. so there are some really really conscious things that we can do uh, really quick and easy decisions i'm not saying we're so plant-based whatsoever i've never ever preached that to anybody but we do have to be more conscious about yeah where we get animal protein from how much of it we consume um you know local raised organic uh, kind of um you know even even the things like our eggs and our chicken and stuff like that you know to try yeah. and get much more local and much more accessible maybe covid and the, and the lockdown has allowed us to do that much more now because of mm-hmm. that like, relationship that we've got with the producers of food so maybe that will continue to exist yeah but what started to happen is there's a misconception around the world especially around vegan and plant-based diets that vegans and plant-based diets are just taking over the world and it really isn't the case you know i think i think veganism makes up like one percent of the diet in the uk yeah and what's also started to happen is around the world in war-torn countries and, and uh, areas of poverty especially there is much more access now to animal protein than ever before so uh, you know places like africa south asia where they probably had much more plant-based diets rice and vegetables previous to the last 10 15 20 years now there's much more access to animal protein and now there's much more access to processed foods and mm-hmm. sugar and it's really changing our diets it's really changing us as a human society yeah and devastating impacts on the planet and it's just a misconception that people are eating less meat because it's not the case more yeah. and more animals die every day than ever before because we've got much more of a global access to food and so we yeah. are looking at the one thing I say is uh, act locally, think globally. So every decision I make, what what impact does it have on the bigger picture? And if I choose to have a bamboo toothbrush as a plastic one, and if I dispose of that, at least I know that um, it's not going to destroy the local environment. Yeah. If 70 million people across the country did the same thing, that has a global impact. Um, so that's the way that I think of it, because you could just get bogged down in like, how am I going to stop deforestation in, in, in Brazil? You know, how am I going to stop millions of animals from being killed and all you can't you're not going to so it's about making those little conscious decisions and, and being aware of those bigger impacts that you make by making those small decisions and yeah you know the education the discussions like i said earlier having those mature open honest debates about things i i have really good discussions with meat eaters um i like talking to meat eaters. i don't particularly like people who are vegan because i feel it's extreme even though i'm plant-based uh, myself because i feel like we need to have these open and nice debates and it might be that i go you know what you've got a point um i agree with what you're saying or it might be that i can change their mind slightly and make them think a little bit differently about their impacts um and their contribution to the bigger picture yeah and then we become mature enough i, I don't know how we're going to have these conversations and that's that's the problem right now in society yeah you have to have those uh, open and, and honest decisions or uh, conversations without feeling like you're being attacked and a lot of people if you were some of those meat right. eaters would probably be saying oh you're attacking me you're you're, you're like yeah. you're right i'm wrong type thing but yeah. it's not like that it's, it's just like, it's like saying well because you voted brexit therefore i'm not talking to you again and everything you say is wrong yeah it might be that you support the same football team and you agree on everything else yeah you've got one thing that you don't agree on that's it you, you know completely polarized yeah. and, and it's just not very mature and, and you know i traveled the world and met people from europe and South Asia and stuff, and I've lived on farms with these people, and they have a better capacity of dealing with these type of things and having much more mature debates when it comes mm-hmm. to indifferences than yeah. we do in the UK, especially. And we need to learn a little bit more to be able to do those things. Yeah, and like just to go back really quickly on like the the dates and stuff. Um, 
buying fresh food and stuff, uh, they have those dates. And before I would even like consider to um, kind of throw it out, like you even mentioned in your TEDx video, um, you know, if you smell milk, you'll smell milk before you throw it out to make sure that it's off. I, I just don't understand human beings yeah. where the only thing that we trust our instincts on is the smell of a very high risk animal protein such as milk and we trust our instincts regardless of the day we trust our instincts and then we don't apply that to <laughs> any other type of food yes <laughs> i don't understand that and <laughs> um, even even saying that like looking at the actual fruit and the vegetables that you have you know you obviously know whenever a fruit or veg is off you'll see bruises on it you'll see the browning and stuff um you can easily cut that section out and so on but um i relying on like smelling the meat and stuff as well is there any other like tips or advice that you would sort of give to people do this before actually trying to throw it out or yeah i mean the biggest problem we've got right now is fruit and vegetables that are wrapped in plastic uh you know cucumbers that have these plastic sheets on them and yeah you know and you know cucumbers didn't grow in plastic they don't need plastic and they say it's to increase their shelf life and their, their freshness but it really isn't um, there's no proof of that whatsoever and it's, it's just a, 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 an issue around cross-contamination and transport you know to make sure it's safely transported and yes that's what it falls down to um, so just things like not buying fruit and veg in plastic is the first thing that we can start looking at um, because the more that we purchase the more that the industry claims that that's our choice Mm-hmm. And we can choose not to, even though it's the only thing that might be accessible. And the, the more that we choose not to, the more that that uh, has a big impact on how they purchase food. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, then once you've got food, things like um, I, I do this a lot, and um, you know, I have a lot of fresh spices so like ginger and garlics and, and stuff like that, turmeric, mm-hmm. and fresh. And I just leave it out on the counter, and you know, sometimes leave it to dry out. But sometimes what I may do is, and especially herbs as well, is I just blend them all together herbs, garlic, ginger, turmeric, you know, whatever I've got lying around, maybe some onion, a little bit of oil. Professional chefs use to kind of extend the shelf lives of food. Yeah. Um, so the way that things are stored, obviously the, the biggest problem to food is moisture. Uh, any forms of moisture can uh, harbor bacteria, which obviously uh, creates mold. Um, so it's like reducing the uh, the moisture content of food. So things like yes. drying foods out, freezing foods, etc. So, um, yeah, I mean, anything like that to reduce the moisture in foods. I mean, chefs do this thing where they use this like, thing called a J-cloth, which is this like blue cloth yeah. um, to wrap foods in when they're putting it in the fridge, and it just sucks up a lot of the surrounding moistures to stop it from getting to the foods. Um, so there's lots and lots of like little things that people can do to, um, to increase their shelf lives on food. But I think, uh, first and foremost, it starts with how we get access to that food. Yeah. Like I said, you know, the plastic uh, on, on the fruit and vegetables is completely pointless and it's single-use plastic. It's causing environmental damage and it, it doesn't increase the shelf life of the food. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And yet we see it as something that's convenient to us and something that is helping us and it's, it really isn't. So first and foremost, it's about uh, considering your impact and how we purchase food, where we purchase it from. Uh, and then secondly, it's obviously tried to, to, to get as much out of it. So, you know, things like carrot peelings, um, the out of leaves of a, of a, of a leek, um, onion peeling, garlic peelings. I used to throw it all in a pan 
add water, bring it to the boil, leave it to simmer, take it off the heat and just leave it a couple of hours, let all the, let all the goodness from the peeling soak into the water and then I just put it through a sieve and then again I just freeze them down into little blocks and I've got this concentrated stock from the effective waste of the products. Um, oh yeah. yeah so um, I, I, I'm con- I do it subconsciously, I don't even think about it. People always say to me what are you doing with all that and I, yeah. I make stocks out of everything, I do all little sauces and stuff and I just I just never throw things away and I incorporate things a lot as well. I've got my own Facebook page, um, Mr Junk Food Chef and Twitter page Yes, and I constantly make food out of surplus with very, very few ingredients. And I'm always, I've never made the same thing twice in my life, mm-hmm. um, except for when I was a professional chef. I'm always experimenting. I'm always, I'm always trying to knock things together and probably get a basic understanding yeah. of food and uh, flavors and how to structure cooking. Um, but yeah, I'm always experimenting with stuff, and I'm always just, you know, mixing stuff together and using leftovers and freezing stuff down and you know constantly trying to increase the life of stuff i always make batch cooking as well i'm absolutely terrible at making small meals with me and my partner i make meals right. like street um and then i just cook it down all right next day we use it for lunch and we'll mix it up with something else and so uh-huh. yeah i'm always i'm always doing stuff like that so yeah i, I guess and there's, there's, there's things like meal planning i know a lot of people that kind of like cook loads of meals at the beginning of the week and then portion them all up and then freeze them down so you've got some of the rest of the week so you're not constantly going out and buying things and, mm-hmm. and and ordering takeaways and that kind of stuff so there's lots of really good habits and lots of really good techniques that you can get into to kind of save money really i mean that's yeah. what it all down to you, you every time you throw food in the thing you're throwing money in the bin um stop throwing it away and you can save uh. money and it's it's knowing what you can do with that, obviously, then making your stock and stuff. And you do, which leads me on to your cafe, and uh, and and what you've started there. It's a page you feel, or and you even mentioned in your TEDx that someone did the electrics in the cafe and stuff, which saved you a lot of money and was yeah. a lot more beneficial to you than than actually just paying you money for the the meals and yeah. stuff. So the model was um, page you feel. It was all about understanding the value of food and understanding the value of people mm-hmm. and I the human right to have access to food and therefore everybody should have access and they don't right now but also as well just because you don't have money shouldn't mean that you shouldn't be able to have access to food and this terrible notion that we have in this country where one minute before midnight we would go out and spend loads of money on food and one minute past midnight it all of a sudden only becomes fit for homeless people or poor people and the like yeah. difference between the food, we would have paid money for it a minute prior to midnight, and then a minute afterwards, we've been gone, no, donate it to a charity or give it away to poor people. And I just try to get rid of that stigma attached to it completely. And um, Page of Field for me is this incredibly inclusive concept which allows you to uh, value people for who they are. So, like you mentioned, the electrician who came and fitted the electrics didn't have any money, sorted the electrics out, we gave him a meal, he was happy, we was happy, no money was exchanged. <laughs> And, and both parties were able to benefit from it yeah. and um, you know a lot of people have a lot to give uh, not necessarily just money and there are people as well that have only money and that's one of the things I really struggled with at the beginning of the uh, journey of the real junk food project was that some people were like I want to pay 20 quid for a bowl of soup and I was like you'd never pay 20 pounds for a bowl of soup you wouldn't go to the best restaurants in the world and pay 20 quid for a bowl yeah. of soup and some of them were like that's all I've got to give I don't have time yeah. I'm precious and 
Um, it made me really realize of what the concept meant for people. Uh, you know, if I truly was going to be inclusive, I had to allow rich people and people that had money to also be part of it as well. Because mm-hmm. they effectively had the capacity to maybe make changes or make decisions or maybe had a greater impact yes. on the environment given their kind of lifestyles. So it's really, really interesting. It really opened my eyes to a lot of the ways that their society works together and um, how we have to stay true to this message of being an environmentally focused organization to allow everybody to feel like they're part of the bigger change rather than stigmatizing them for being poor and feeding them with surplus food. Um, so yeah, the cafe, we don't have the cafe anymore now. We're just about to open a new one, but the original cafe we closed in 2018 and sold it. Um, it became socially very difficult for us because the local authorities were dumping people onto us and um, it became very unsafe at some points. But you can't deny what it did. You know, it's in a very, yeah. very hostile and very, very poor community. Uh, and I say poor, I mean in wealth, but in spirit, they were not poor whatsoever. We made mm-hmm. some incredible friends and met some incredible people. And um, it allowed us to grow around the world, to reach out and, and, and expose the concept to the point where we're, you know, we're hiring people on living wage now and we've got 25 members of staff and we've thousands and thousands of tons of food a year and yeah. it across the UK. It was all because of that little, little cafe in Armour. Um, incredible. And uh, what's the process of starting something like that? Because obviously you said um, it's not a charity. It's basically a company or, or what? Yeah, I mean, it, well, it, is, it is a charitable organisation now as well as still. Right, company. okay. So yep. we set up as a social enterprise um, to give us the freedom to manoeuvre, which allowed us to kind of make decisions, fight fire, deal with adult situations, rather than being restricted by um, governance from the Charity Commission, which is incredibly strict. You, know, you can't just do what you want as a charity. You have to stay true to your objectives. Um, and so it's incredibly difficult for charities to diversify and manoeuvre to situations, especially like COVID. Yeah. And... Um, then because the network grew globally, we had to create a travel foundation to kind of oversee the network. So the actual concept that I'm the CEO of that we run uh, is still an organization, it's still a social enterprise. We just have an extra board of governance that oversees and kind of guardians for the concept and trusted people that don't get paid that sit on a different board to me and um, kind of just support and advise and, 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 and there for us if we need them. Um, but yeah, to get started, first of all, you have to be absolutely mental. Uh, to even want to do this because once you step through that door and you open yourself to global issues around poverty, food waste, environments, animals, mm. uh, all these kind of things because it all revolves around food, um, you either get caught up in it and get very angry and start to lose focus and probably integrity as well or you can consciously make decisions to create change and that's what that's what we do. Um, we don't get caught up in the politics of it. Uh, we're not assigned to any political party. We, we don't see ourselves as a charitable organisation. Uh, even though we are registered as a charity, we see ourselves as an organisation that empowers people rather than those kind of hand-me-down kind of gestures. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's, it's a, it was an incredibly tough seven years kind of discovering ourselves as an organisation. It's only until the last couple of weeks that we've really streamlined our operations and understood who we truly are and what we're trying to achieve and what we could potentially do on a national or even international level yeah the capacity of people that we're speaking to now because of what happened with covid so yeah i feel like um there's lots of amazing people similar to me all over the uk who are going out there and collecting food and sharing it between one another and it's about the principle of it 
it isn't about Adam Smith and it isn't about the real chunky project. It's about the principle that people are passionately trying to stop this food from going to waste and trying to make sure that in the most kindness, kindness of matters, in the, in the, in the most uh, altruistic ways that we're trying to share it with one another. And um, that's what's most important because 2011, 2012, these things were not happening. And mm -hmm. now more and more people are doing it than ever before. So I think it's just about, you know, taking the leap of faith, I guess, is the kind of cliched way of describing it. And, and, and if you want to be a part of this, then there are things that you can start to do. You can either get in touch with local people who are doing it, or you can be passionately involved and, 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 and do it yourself. And there's loads, loads and loads of people. I could name hundreds of people right now that are doing it all over the country. Yeah. In different models, some doing it better than others. Some doing it low-key, just want to do it with their local streets or their local communities. Some are wanting to do it on a bigger scale. And uh, yeah, unfortunately, when you open those doors, you've also got to prepare yourself to what's about to come to you because mm -hmm. you're doing this in an area like we did, for example, in Wakefield in, the, in West Yorkshire where there wasn't really much going on uh, we we kind of uh, moved into that area and all of a sudden the volumes of waste and the interactions we had with people was completely off the charts uh, compared to anything that we'd ever dealt with before because there was just so much of it and there was nobody there to kind of deal with that situation and when we came in we were very skilled at de dealing with it um, and it opened our eyes and doors to lots of the new contacts and new sources of food on a scale we'd never seen before um, to the point where now we're dealing with hundreds of tons of food on a monthly basis um, and we've had to open up a 15,000 square foot warehouse to try and <laughs> deal with everything yeah. Of a day. yeah it's absolutely, uh, it's absolutely yeah. mental so if you're prepared for it and it's something you want to do you know it's, it's achievable it's relatively easy um, which it shouldn't be because of the scale of the problem um, there's a lot of kind of legalities things around it so like food safety issues yeah. environmental health health and safety all those kind of things which we've got in abundance right now that we had to learn the hard way and we had to uh, implement a lot of these things that we didn't quite truly understand ourselves and we just had to kind of learn how to get people to come and support us to do it mm -hmm. there's a lot of hidden costs as well involved so one of the things that i mean when you said then how do people start this the very 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 first thing i tell people now is consider your waste your waste management and your waste costs because when somebody donates you a pallet of food all that pallet of food comes in single-use cling film. So where are you going to put that cling film? And then you've got a pallet, and then you've got cardboard boxes, probably hundreds of cardboard boxes on this pallet. And then some of the food might be a bit mouldy. So what are you going to do with it? Where is it going to go? How are you going to segregate it? Have you got any costs in, in, in mind for dealing with recycling and general waste and food waste? Yes. Huge costs. Now let's say that you get a pallet every day. Well, who's going to deal with it? Who's going to manage that pallet? Are you getting volunteers in? Are you paying staff? How much time are you going to spend on doing this? We've got teams of people just quality controlling day upon day, pallets and pallets of fruit and vegetables. That's all they do because of the scale of the problem that we have to deal with. And people don't see this and people don't realise it. They just think it's all you know, beautiful and you know you get all this beautiful exposure and everything. Yes. Um, you know, all, all peaches and cream and it really isn't. You know, it's usually mouldy. It's hard work. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, it'd be hard work. It's really hard work. I mean, some of our volunteers go home and say that they've done like, 15,000 steps a day and some of them are in like 60 to 70 some of our volunteers and we're doing like steps. I mean it's a really really laborious and really strenuous job um, but they feel so passionate about it and they feel like they've contributed to a bigger picture yeah that people love doing it and um, I don't know why they come back sometimes because it's mental <laughs> what they do I mean you try taking 
uh, mouldy cucumbers out of plastic wrapping in, in thousands of boxes. It's, it's mental. Uh-huh. Um, we compost it, we send it to anaerobic digestion, we separate all our plastics. You know, we're really, really skilled now at dealing with our waste, but it took us, it took us seven years to get yes. These are things that you've got to take into consideration because if you did it at home or in your garden or your local community centre, which we did, there's a lot of waste. Where is mm-hmm. it going to go? You can't put it into your car, you can't put it into your bins. You know, mm-hmm. There's a lot of issues that you've got to deal with that people don't quite anticipate when it yeah. comes to doing things like this. So although I encourage it and the principle of the matter is more important than anything else, um, there are some really basic things that you should take into consideration first before you take that leap of faith because uh, it's a whole brave new world out there. When it comes yes, to for sure. Um, there was... Uh, we touched on a lot of things that I did want to kind of uh, go over uh, with regards to educating people and, and the, uh, the industry and, and what it's doing with the actual surplus and food poverty. And one of the things that was really, I don't know if you want to sort of touch on it and your, your views on this, but um, Marcus Rashford did a lot of stuff there about school meals and stuff and obviously the kids weren't getting to school so they were losing that meal and, and it was a lot of food poverty. But I think we touched on this here where it's it's not fixing the issue, it's it's yeah. just it's it's treating the symptoms. It's not yeah. Although I mean, there was a lot of good behind it. Thing is, James, um I'm a Leeds fan. Um I grew up not liking Manchester United. Yeah. Nothing that Manchester United does or a player does, I obviously uh, I, I, um, I despise. Um, I, I also have autism as well, and my kind of political uh, is red, so I, I can't even get into, like, I can't write with red pens and sit on red chairs and stuff like that. <laughs> the fact that this guy, and I mean, without being too cynical, this is a millionaire young footballer. Mm who managed to get a phone call with a prime minister who the very next day released 150 million pounds into contract catering to supply children with food out of term time. Now, objectively speaking, it was great. Uh, Marcus Rashford's amazing at campaigning. You know, him, Jamie Oliver's of the world, you know, that come out and they're passionate and create a lot of exposure around a problem. Hugh Fenner, what he saw was really well. But the next day, they go back to their lives and we carry on trying to deal with this issue. I've been working with schools since 2016. Schools have been burdened with the responsibility of going above and beyond academic uh, um, kind of uh, operations. So you've got schools now that do breakfast clubs, after school clubs, food banks, provisions of food, extra food at lunch times and they don't have the budgets or the staff or the training the resources to do this and they're expected to do it above and beyond and a lot of schools do go above and beyond i promise you right now Seamus, that if you came and speak to me in january 2022 and asked me what had happened in 2021 i promise you we could talk about the fact that throughout all the holiday times throughout the rest of this year all the way up to december children will be going to school hungry they will be going through holiday times without extra without food and this whole kind of sensationalism around Marcus Rashford feeding children isn't entirely accurate. Um, lots of contract catering, school caterers out there did amazing work at making sure that children got fed. Some of them didn't. And some of them that didn't, the pictures of that food was on social media. Now, it was obviously picked up and then all of the industry got tired with the same brush. 
some of those pictures were not accurate, some of those pictures were a little bit misconstrued in terms of the length of time that food was meant for. Some of those pictures were um, for lunch for five days rather than 10 days and you know some of it was meant to be for a value of 11 pound not 30 pound and, and I had all this knowledge and I thought you know what I won't get heavily involved but one of my posts that I put out recently was it's not up to schools and contract caterers to feed our children yeah it's not their responsibility first and foremost it's my responsibility as a parent to make sure that my child has food mm -hmm. it's my responsibility to make sure that my child goes to school and once my child at school I expect a certain amount of food to be fed to my child now my son is seven he knows more about food than i do you know he's grown up around food he's been at the real jungle project he's been volunteering since he was about three days old and he's been in all my cafes and all my warehouses and he even does things like when he helps me out sometimes in the warehouse he'll go around and get like a piece of fruit and a piece of veg and you know put it into a bag and then when people turn up to collect their boxes he gives it to them as extra extra food you know, yes. he's already that way inclined to kind of support people and help people and give back and stop waste and you know he tells everybody about it i even have parents contacting me from the school telling me about how their kids come home talking about joshua's daddy and all the food that he stops and all the people feed. so he's really passionate about it he loves it he goes to school he's a vegetarian sometimes he comes home and he's like all i've had to do about is chips because there's no vegetarian option and there's no yeah. veg, and he's asking them for fruit and veg so i have to send him to school sometimes with like pockets of cherries and blueberries and some of the other kids don't even know what this stuff is and joshua's eating like it's smart yeah. and sweets um so it's okay saying there wasn't enough food provided in holiday time from schools to families but why do we have families who can't afford to feed their children in yeah. holiday times when it's not the responsibility of the schools that's the thing that i started looking at yeah and also as well it's not just about holiday time what they get in schools is crap you know it is it's crap it doesn't matter how good the school is or you know what kind of awards they won and what they put into it generally across society children are fed of crap um, there's not enough nutritional content in their food there's not enough plant-based foods in there you know with good nutritional quality you know these are places of learning they need the brain capacity and the mental mm -hmm. capacity, physical capacity to be able to interact and socialize and develop and grow and then we feed them bloody chicken nuggets and chips and turkey you know, twizzlers and turkey twizzlers like it's crap like it's crap we know it's crap it's always been crap Jamie Oliver did a bloody program about it um, yeah about how parents used to come to the gates and shove chicken nuggets through the fences to the kids because the kids were complaining that Jamie Oliver had cooked some fruit and vegetables for lunch <laughs> and so they needed this fix of processed crap. Yeah. And, you know, fundamentally, we have a problem in this country when it comes to food. And it's something, obviously, that I talked about earlier about our relationship to food and the education around food. Um, I think what Marcus Rashford did was amazing. I don't believe he should have been given a New Year's honours for it because... I still don't quite know what he's done. Um, I think he had a conversation with the Prime Minister and he did some Instagram posts. He volunteered at an organisation called Fair Share, which is great. I think it's great. But this guy's a millionaire football player and he was upset about a situation. He spoke out about it, rightly so. And then all of a sudden he gets an OBE and then 150 million. Where did this 150 million come from? Why, was it, why did it take a football player, a young football player, to stand up and say something about against it for, for this 150 million to just exist yes. you know and, and that's the problem that i have with it i don't have a problem with marcus rush whatsoever I, you know i think he's he's doing the right thing yeah uh, yeah yeah you know lots of young people in that position he's, he's an elitist sports star you know he's mm -hmm. a multi-million pound uh, player 
elitist sports star um, and, and travels all over the world and is incredibly influential and is an incredible role model. I think that, and he's done the right thing for speaking out about yeah. it. I just don't think he truly understands what he's saying. Uh, Whilst there's people on the ground like myself and others that are like, it's not entirely accurate and maybe he's not entirely fighting the right fight. Mm. Because again, like I said, and we keep repeating, it's all we seem to be doing is plastering over cracks. And we don't seem to be tackling at the root cause. The source, Why are yes. children going to school hungry? Why are they going through 13 weeks a year of yeah. no time where their parents are struggling to feed them? Why yeah. do we have some shitty hashtag called holiday hunger? Like it's something cool that we all have to hashtag and talk yeah. about. Yeah. And the reality of it is that children are going hungry, parents are struggling. But also it's the type of foods that we're giving them. So yeah. me and my partner, we eat plant-based. We can go buy a tin of chickpeas for 30, 40 pence fruit and vegetables maybe spend no more than a pound but we can cook a decent meal yeah how many families have that knowledge and experience to be able to mm. do stuff like that it might not be the most glamorous dish but nutritionally it's probably some of the best things that we can eat you know proteins and the beans and healthy fruit and vegetables um we don't mind it and a bit of rice to go with it and you know we're set you know we're, we're quite happy um a lot of people want to be in a la carte you know <laughs> gastronomic steak <laughs> Three times a day. Like, <laughs> you know, or they go out and buy takeaways twice a day. Or, you know, I've got there's a roundabout next to my house. Yeah. Every single day that roundabout is absolutely blocked with the queue into the drive through at McDonald's. Yeah. It's um, the same here as well. So <laughs> really very difficult because it's great what he's doing. It's um, highlighting it's more or less highlighting an issue and it's it's getting yeah. it out there. You know, and again with celebrity and their followings, it's 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 a way to yeah highlight that issue, and I think at a, at a young fell uh, at a young age he did have an issue with like he was yeah. getting food food and stuff, yeah, and, which is which is he's yeah, he's uh, yeah. Um, but again, uh, it's 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 having that conversation, that mature conversation. Like this is the issue, but where's yeah. the source and 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 stuff? Also, so, you've got to think about as well some of the organisations that are part of this campaign. How many of those have got vested interests? To make sure that they're a part of that rhetoric to ensure that either things don't get exposed or they're seen as part of the solution mm. to kind of divert our attention away from what's really going on because i'm yeah. aware of some of those organizations and i'm aware of some of the things that they do yeah and uh, it's not entirely um the best thing that could be done the best practices although they do some great things they also do some things that are not very great and i just think the focus is kind of about shifting our attention away, you know, that's mm-hmm. why I, I hate these sensationalized because it happens all the time. The Jamie Oliver, you know, with the school thing as Max Rashford with the holiday vouchers. There's always these sensationalized, very fickle periods in our lifetimes where people are like jumping on the bandwagon. It's either Black Lives Matters or it's Brexit or it's school dinners. And then next day we forget and you know, tomorrow we'll be talking about the inauguration of Joe Biden. Um, about all these kids it's like every day was people like those on the ground striving to tackle the problem mm-hmm. and were willing to sit around and talk about the issues and about the root causes and about how to create sustainable changes and collaborating with other organizations you know we're collaborating with contract caterers and supermarkets and wholesalers to look at how we can prevent this from happening in the future or we can mm-hmm. be at least immediate provision going forward until we come up with those answers but it needs political intervention it needs the government it, to intervene. it needs businesses to say um you know we're not going to keep throwing our food away or we're going to you know provide above and beyond because prisoners 
have a higher budget for their meals than school children do. Say it again. Prisoners, people in prison, yeah, have a higher food budget per meal than children do in primary schools. <laughs> so, fundamentally, we're putting more into keeping people in prisons and making them healthier than we are the next generation yeah. of yeah. our society. So, if that's the case, then Marcus Rashford coming out and doing a campaign on Instagram about children going hungry isn't going to change anything. You know, it's just going to sensationalise it and it just gets me wound up when people mm-hmm. jump on the bandwagon. There's a lot of people making profit from it as well. A lot this, of is, this is the other thing. Whenever you have those, say if you were to actually sit down with the like of the Prime Minister or Marcus Rashford and explain to them and highlight certain issues and whenever you get down to the nitty gritty of it, they'll probably turn around and say, well... Because you have all, you sort of have a knowledge, a background knowledge of all this, all their stuff that's going on behind the scenes, and yeah, yeah. and it, it would be sort of fearful to for even for me to even think that it wouldn't go ahead or wouldn't change because it, it either doesn't make money, or you know to to do it the way that you see fit, mm. you know that there is there's um, there's certain restrictions there because of the cost of it and, and stuff and there's profit margins or whatever and it's it's sort of it's sad the cost of us dealing with the symptoms of the problem like you said mm. 150 million to put into school vouchers surely the cost of that is greater than the investment that is needed to create the infrastructure for having better provisions in schools you know having a much more productive society of young people who are mentally and physically fitter and better conditioned, mm-hmm. it's surely a better investment than dealing with the symptoms of holiday hunger. But then you've also got the health, you know, children that have got poor teeth and, yep. and allergies and all the other things that come with it. Surely that's a cost to the NHS. Surely that's a cost to society. Mm-hmm. Surely that's a cost to the economy because you've got people who are probably um, taking days off work and, and, and because of their poor diets. Um, fatigue and mental health and all the things that come with poor diets and just having that in our schools surely and then the cost of waste if we didn't waste all that fruit and vegetables instead we created meals or diverted it into schools yeah for young people surely that's a better investment and a wiser and more economical and environmentally use of our resources mm-hmm. than just plowing 150 million pounds into some school vouchers which we know that some people took advantage of you know i know because i was speaking to people but because there was no restrictions on what people could and couldn't buy with them, people were going in and purchasing items of non-food at supermarkets rather than purchasing food. No way. Just, yeah, it was happening. It was all over social media with it. I know I, I got first-hand experience of it. Supermarkets were talking about it. Staff was mentioning it. So you've got the people that will exploit it. You've got the people that need it. But fundamentally, nothing changes. And yeah. I promise in December 2021, we'll still be speaking about this. We'll still be talking about it. And we'll still be talking about the impacts of mm-hmm. not investing in food into young people and providing them with a basic education about what they're putting in their bodies and where they source their food from. Because that fundamentally changes our family structures because if children are going home and putting pressure on their parents that they want fruit and veg instead of chicken nuggets from McDonald's or other retailers or other fast food suppliers, mm-hmm. then um, you know that will change our society for the better and parents will be forced to do what their children do because it shuts them up because oh, that's what i do with my son yeah <laughs> just eating yeah. a ponic cherry to shut him up yeah um and i just think we need to invest in that a lot more than what we do and um, i think we undervalue it and i think it's also contributing massively to um mental health issues in young people as well 
for sure for sure it's a it's like a sad picture but uh only time will tell if it if it really improves um look there's a lot of information there is there have you putting stuff like this on your website where can people kind of read more into this and kind of yeah. get more educated on it well obviously i'm writing a book at the moment um, yeah about my story as well so the kind of mental health suicide the kind of social entrepreneur part of stuff uh, I'm, I'm writing up at the moment hopefully that should be released towards the end of february oh um, fantastic yeah i'm doing three thousand words a day i've got 30 chapters to do so um yeah ninety thousand words in total hopefully 30 days I hope. <laughs> That's insane. Yeah. And um, obviously, tijfp.com, which is the website for the Real Junker Project. Uh, people can go there. We, we're very, very loud on social media. Um, you know, and we're, we're very interactive as well with the public. So there's lots of weird and wonderful ways people can get hold of us and find information about us. But, uh, mention your social media pages there if you can. Yeah, so it's tijfp and then project. Um, it's just a way that the, the handle is. Uh, so uh, we have Facebook, especially is our biggest. We do Twitter as well, and we, uh, we're quite active on LinkedIn. And I'm very, very active on LinkedIn as well. So yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm, yeah. Lots of businesses, and I'm very, very um, uh, outspoken on LinkedIn. Uh, <laughs> it gets controversial people. I'm having an argument <laughs> with the guy from Brewdog because um, he winds me up. Um, and so I like to speak out about stuff like that. So yeah, there's lots of ways to get in touch with us. But I mean, this year especially, 21, we're going to be focusing on. Uh, how we interact with the public more. So we, we're hoping to launch an app in the coming weeks, which will yes. allow people to access um, a box of food from us, and they can allocate a hub to collect it from. And we're going to be creating hubs all over the country, wow. all over the world as well. And with that app as well, then we'll start putting out information and stats and figures and recipes as well with the food that we currently got in stock, and just try to educate and interact with people much more through that through that power of the uh, software that um, yes. the world is. Focusing on at the moment. That's amazing, um, man. Yeah, so that's that's the that's the route that we're going down. So it's 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 uh it's kind of amalgamating all the things that we do really well and what other organisations do really well into one single app. Um, providing people with food, exposing the levels of food waste, and then also educating people about all the issues at the same time, and really focusing on systematic change and behavioural change. Uh, rather than patronizing people for the positions that they find themselves in at that moment in time yeah 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 awesome buddy look i really appreciate you taking the time uh i know you have a busy schedule obviously writing your book and with yeah. being a dad and stuff so like uh, it's been awesome to kind of connect and and hear your story and hopefully people listen to this will will think twice about what they're doing in the in the shopping malls and, and doing their groceries and obviously what they do with their food waste and stuff and um so uh, again thank you so much for taking the time